Welcome back to the Pool Pro Podcast with Dave and Michelle. This episode concludes our two-part series on UV as a secondary sanitation system. Is it effective on chloramines? Listen up to find out. Welcome back to the Pool Pro Podcast. This is Michelle Cavanaugh with co-host. Dave Rockwell's here. Hey, Dave. Good morning. Nice to see your face. I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Yes, I'm excited today, and Dave's very excited as well. We have a returning guest, Greg Renicky. So uh, let's talk about two things, UV and living organisms and UV and chloramines. Let's start with living organisms. Um, there are different wavelengths that affect different types of uh, critters, and so my my question is when when we say we're, we've got a, a UV unit that has a 254 nanometer bulb, is that it? It's only that wavelength, or is there a broader spectrum getting through? And are we only killing one type of uh, parasite, or or is there a broader spectrum? Are we are, does it have an effect on more than just one type? That's a really good question. So it's kind of a bell curve. So if we think of the, the, the bell curve, you know, we, we, we run right up into the middle. When it comes to, let's say, a 254 nanometer lamp, and this is where it's important to buy from reputable vendors. Uh, big, big thing when it comes to UV lamps, don't get suckered into the off-brand game where they sell these super cheap offshore lamps. Pay extra for the quality validated tested lamps because there really is a difference. So it's kind of a bell curve. A 254 nanometer lamp is going to primarily be in that 254 nanometer wavelength, but there will be a little bit of, of the spectrum to the sides, down to 200, up to 260 kind of thing. But the, the goal is to hit that 254. And that, that number through testing over the last God, close to 100 years now uh, has shown to be the most effective against a broad spectrum of living organisms. And it's important to understand that algae is not a magic laser that, I apologize, ultraviolet's not a magic laser that nukes every single bug. Uh, it works really well against a lot of living organisms, but it doesn't inactivate all of them. And it doesn't damage all of them to the same degree. And so organisms that are cysts, like crypto, UV doesn't do very well against that because that cyst is this hard shell that resists the light. It's a shade. Yeah, exactly. And just like chlorine doesn't do very well against cysts. You know, that's why if we have a fecal incident in the pool, we're not gonna just throw chlorine at it. We're gonna drain it, scrub it and fill it. You know, because we, we can't trust the disinfectant technology to that level. And so the same thing kind of happens with ultraviolet and ultraviolet can be a little bit of a double-edged sword when you're not maintaining it properly, because remember, algae likes sunlight. And if your ultraviolet transmittance level drops, if you're, you're putting a very low ultraviolet energy into the water, that would happen if you're not maintaining the system. You can actually encourage algae growth. You can promote the growth of algae. I've got some photos of some uh, UV radiators that came out of a pond a little um, 380,000 gallon pond at somebody's home. And 
they were trying to have koi in the pond and they had a pretty complicated ecosystem. They didn't want to use any chemicals to control algae. And so they were sold on this array of ultraviolet. The problem is they didn't maintain the sleeves. There was hardness in the water for the fish. They scaled and then they became bioreactors. They actually promoted algae growth. And there was more algae in the ultraviolet radiators than there was in the pond. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you go, okay, this, this isn't just a, a, a one-time pop it in and forget about it. Yeah. Like any good thing, you've got to maintain it. You have to, you have to think about what you're doing when you put it in. And I think that hits right right where I was trying to go with this is this is not just a bolt on, forget it. And ozone isn't that, none of these things are just, you know, oh, I've got, I've got this on my pool. I, it's magic now. I don't have to worry about things anymore. Exactly. They add to maintenance. They add to uh, maintenance costs. There's parts that need to be replaced annually or whatever. So um, nothing is just install it and forget it. Absolutely. And a, and a smart pool treatment professional, a smart recreational water manager doesn't want a hands-off system. Because you think about it, everything we do with recreational waters is highly unnatural. In nature, you only have clear water where you have water in and water out. And we don't do water out because we don't have the water to waste. So we're, we're keeping this captive body of water that is entirely unnatural. But we're trying to manage it in a way that we don't hurt the humans that are using it. And we're trying to manage it in a way that is environmentally sustainable. And that's where a well-educated, well-trained, forward-thinking practitioner is going to make sure that they're constantly testing and maintaining that system. You know, it's, it's, everything's about control points, right? You test it. You observe it, you make a change, see if the change worked, you write it down, and then you move on to the next step. And it's, you have to get into that mindset. And really, from a business perspective, number one, you're going to have a happier customer. And number two, you're going to have a more profitable business because you now have a value in the services that you provide to your users. Uh, so what I'm hearing uh, with what you're saying about crypto and UV it really sounds to me like if you're going to, if you have a, a pool that you're concerned about crypto, really you need to be thinking more in terms of ozone, not, not uh, UV. And, and the big thing with something like crypto is physical filtration. You know, the, the, the key to getting those cysts under control is to catch them, capture and kill. There's no catch and release when it comes to crypto. You have to catch and kill. And there's some studies that have indicated even dead crypto, and some of those cysts when they're broken, if humans consume them, you can have an immune system response that's very similar to an actual infection mm. because your body misidentifies uh, what's coming into it. And so good filtration should never be overlooked. And that's something that frequently is overlooked because good filtration tends to cost money. You know, it takes more pumping power and it takes more real estate and nobody wants this big monster pool room. But in reality, if you want a, a, the cleanest, safest, healthiest environment, you really got to physically filter, kill, and then maintain a residual. You know, it's that, like everything, it's that three-step approach to make sure that you're, you're controlling all aspects of that ecosystem. 
And that's a that's a conversation that could be a, a, an entire uh, another episode. Yep. Much so. and, yeah. And we've actually had one. We had James Ambergie from uh, South Carolina. Uh, he's he's a scientist who studies filtration, mm-hmm. and that's nice. his biggest bone of contention is how inefficient all of our filters are. And and it's and nobody's doing to, anything about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it's gotten me to thinking about that that as, as pool people. That's really the, the thing we give the least amount of thought to. Yep. We have fans of DE filters. We have fans of cartridge filters. We have fans of sand filters. But it's all just, you know, um, experience and personal preference. It's not that we've really, uh, over the last 30 years, it's the one piece of equipment that's about the same now as when I broke into the industry 32 years ago. And... Uh, so it's just, uh, it is something that requires a lot more attention. But again, that's a whole other topic for all. Yes, it is. <laughs> and there's another place where that UVT um, detector, that UVT measuring instrument can, can help you because you'll be able to get a good indication on how well you're doing filtering the things that you don't see well with the naked eye. Right, right. Mm. Yeah. Um, so the, the next thing is UV and chloramine control. Yeah. Um, and, and I've read thing, read articles, both good and bad about UV and, and chloramine control, um, particularly when it comes to organic chloramines, um, there's a school of thought that maybe UV can even make them worse. Okay. Yeah. And, and there's some complexities there with chloramine. So if we think about what chloramine is, chloramine is chlorine plus and ammonia. And in a pool, how in the heck did that ammonia get there? Well, we know how that ammonia got there. <laughs> and then yep. there's, there's also families of bacteria that yeah. consume and live on nitrates and they contribute to chloramine production. And depending on the temperature, you can have different types of chloramine developing in the water. There's kind of a curve where you can see mono versus di and trichloramines that are gonna be produced. And it can get really, really complicated. So probably the first thing to talk about is ultraviolet light reacts with aqueous chlorine. So let's take chloramine and set it aside for a second and backtrack to chlorine. If you're using UV in the pool, the UV will, as a side effect, lower your total chlorine residual because it's promoting the chemical reaction where that hypochlorous acid diverts into chloride. And we end up with chloride or chloride in the water depending on on what's going on. And so whether it's a salt pool or a, uh, a gaseous chlorine dioxide pool or whatever you're doing, ultraviolet light is going to break down the chlorine. And that's the whole reason why cyanuric acid was introduced into chlorine to try and minimize the, the off gas or the destruction of chlorine. Uh, the, I hate to use the word destruction because that implies chemically it's destruction, but, but really it's changing that hypochlorous acid or uh, whatever form that chlorine is in. It's changing it to another form and typically it's going to be a chloride or a chloride. And when it comes to chloramine, we have some similar chemistry, but just like cyanuric acid stabilizes chlorine against UV, 
monochloramine stabilizes chlorine against UV. And so UV will have some effect, but not a lot on lowering chloramine levels. I personally would not recommend depending on UV in any way, shape or form to control chloramine. I'd rather look at why the chloramine is being created and try and eliminate the sources of the problem. So if we've got a lot of chloramine formation and people have got sore eyes and they've got some of those common telltale signs, we got to look at what's going on. Uh -huh. do, do we need to encourage people to shower before they get in the pool? Do we need to have a lecture about- Answer that question, yes. <laughs> I mean, there, there's some simple basic things and, and for a private pool, that's pretty easy thing to, to police a lot of the times, yeah. unless you have population groups that can't or won't. But, there's, there's a lot more to it. And, and the best thing to do is to try and knock down that nitrate, you know, get rid of that nitrate out of the equation. And, you know, it's, that's a difficult critter to get out. You know, you can use various carbons, you know, there's catalytic carbons and things like that, that will, will, will uh, react with the chloramine, not necessarily designed to take the nitrate out, but to try and break that chloramine down and then liberate that nitrate out. But we've got to try and either dilute it out through selective purging and refilling, or we got to look at possibly filtering it out. You know, in big high-end commercial pools where they can't afford to continue to purge and fill, and they get high nitrate loads, they'll use anion resin, and they'll use the resin in a side stream to pull some of that nitrate out and regenerate it with sodium chloride salt. But we got to got to kind of look at the big picture. So. The, the, the long answer to the short question is yes, ultraviolet has an effect on both chlorine and chloramine, but I wouldn't use it as the tool to control chloramine. Now, if we go back to where did the nitrates come from, if a lot of that nitrate is because of algae and we're using the ultraviolet to minimize algae propagation and proliferation, you're going to end up with less chloramine formation long term. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh -huh. So it's it's kind of a tilt your mental aspect and, and, and think about it as as it is reactive, but it's really not the best tool for the job. All right. Yeah. That that's that's uh, that's a that's a great answer, and that's that's what I'm thinking. You know, and the thing about it is too, is when it comes to chloramines, uh, a pool professional is kind of at the mercy of their test kit. It's yeah. very nonspecific. You get combined chlorine. You subtract your free chlorine, and there, <clears throat> there's your, um, your, your bad chlorine, your chloramines. But it doesn't tell us whether it's monochloramine or whether it's uh, nitrogen trichloride or uh, cyanogen chloride, you know, something that's going to send somebody to the hospital. All we know is we've got chloramines and we got to figure out a way to get rid of them yeah and that it's it's really complex and and that's the tough part managing recreational waters is you're dealing with some pretty advanced chemistry and it's not fair to make the the pool treatment operator go run thousand dollar test panels once a week and so we're stuck within the limits of our testing technology and that's where we need to always think about the holistic you know a good pool designer looks at slope of the walls treatment coating material, flow rate, piping. You know, there's so many things that'll, that'll have an effect on the ability of the pool to do a better job. And so 
I guess what we're both hammering at here is don't you dare try to use UV only to, to protect a pool and to protect the bathers. Yeah, it's not a chlorine yeah. uh, alternative. It's, it's not an alternative. It's not a replacement. It, it is a supplemental sanitizer and it can be useful in some uh, situations. Now, the other thing about it with living organisms, UV doesn't technically kill them dead. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's a fun thing to wrap your head around. So we use the term inactivate. UV inactivates bacteria. So if we think about how we kill bugs, there's really two ways to kill bugs. One is to blow them up and the other is to bleed them out. So mm -hmm. blowing them up is basically what uh, high concentrations of ozone do. That oxidative yeah. reaction, it just causes that, that outer... Uh, the outer shell of the bacteria, whether it's a cyst or whether it's a, a normal gram-negative bacterial organism, it just basically bursts it. There's such an oxidative reaction occurring. Think about when you pour peroxide onto a cut and you see that fizzing. Mm -hmm. That's not bacteria dying. That's the peroxide reacting with uh, the proteins in your blood. But the same thing happens when ozone reacts with bacteria. It basically blows it up. Mm -hmm. And then if you use chemicals like quartz, you know, backwhistle, things like that, that's a lysing action. So there's a particular brand of disinfectant we've all used at some point in our lives. It's called Lysol. That name comes from lysing. And lysing is basically the concept of chemical swords puncturing the outer layer of the bacterial organism. And it bleeds out and it dies. So blow them up, bleed them out. But then ultraviolet comes along and it's a little different. It disrupts the DNA of the bacteria. And so it actually, think of it like uh, you've, you've got a, a ribbon of DNA, you've got this helix of DNA and you've got uh, your, your various codes in the DNA and it actually destroys some of the pieces in that DNA and it destroys so many that the bacteria essentially stops being able to do anything. It cannot reproduce. And that this works with algae, it works with a host of other things. In fact, just about anything that you expose long enough to ultraviolet light will eventually be inactivated. So think about hanging laundry out in the sun. You know, those of us that are old enough before we, we all use uh -huh. dryers all the time. You hang laundry out in the sun, it smells good. Uh -huh. And that's because that bacteria got killed by the ultraviolet radiation from the sun. And so, we're inactivating bacteria with UV, but it, we can't use it as you very well put, we can't use it as an alternative to chlorine. It's a secondary, it's an augmentation to chlorine because we want that residual because UV is only good while it can see stuff. Mm -hmm. So for that half a second that that water, if you think about water flowing at hundred gallons a minute through a pool, you've got maybe maybe a half a second of contact time on a good day. I don't think I trust my health and safety to that half a second of contact time. And that's why NSF doesn't trust it either. And so even an NSF 50 certified UV system does not give you a free pass to use that as a primary disinfectant. And especially when it's beyond you and your family and you're in a, a public environment or a hospitality environment, if, if other people who depend on you to do a good job and you don't, people can actually die. 
Yeah. Right. This is how these Legionella infections happen on cruise ships and hotels and things like that is because somebody was negligent in doing their job in protecting. And if we think we're doing a good thing by putting UV in because the salesperson was excited and said, hey, you don't even need to use chlorine. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> Time to go back and read some books. We want residual. We want that residual killing power in all the dead spots. And so, yes, UV is awesome but it's got to be enough power. It's got to be the right wavelength. You have to have enough contact time and you have to maintain the thing. And that brings up something that most people overlook, which is electricity. So ultraviolet light only works when it's on. So a really smart thing to do with UV is at a minimum to use surge suppression to protect the electronics from power surges. But we know the thing that happens more commonly is power sags. Mm -hmm. And power sags are highly problematic because there's a direct relationship between voltage and current. And when a power sag happens, the voltage drops, which means the current draw increases. And when that happens, that causes significant wear on the power supply that's driving the ultraviolet uh, lamp. And that's where uninterruptible power supplies are incredibly helpful. And because most of these UV radiators are actually pretty low power consumers, you know, you're 50 to 100 watt typically on a single lamp, you can use a relatively cost-effective UPS, uninterruptible power supply, which is the same kind of thing we use on our computers to keep them running. That's what I was just gonna ask you, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's exactly it. So it's a battery with an inverter that's able to continue producing 60 cycle electricity at 110, 120 volts. So that when there's a sag or a surge, that UV just keeps on trucking because most of the UVs out on the market today are high pressure mercury lamps. And that's where they use a ballast. And you think of the fluorescent light, you walk into your office, you flip the lights on and off, on and off, on and off. Eventually they don't quite come back on again. That's because that ballast is in a situation where your, your inrush current is coming in and out faster than it can accommodate. And you, you end up causing significant problems. So solid, steady, consistent supply of electricity is really important. That's something most people don't consider. We've learned it the hard way managing decorative and recreational pool bodies. We've learned that there's a lot of issues that happen with power. You know pump starts running inefficiently, filter starts plugging up, you got more head pressure, bam, we trip a breaker. Well, you might have the UV on the same breaker, which is bad practice, but it sometimes happens. Or you just might have a situation where you've got dirty power. All of those are things that hurt the UV's ability to do its job. And you wanna make sure you make its job as easy as possible. You wanna give it good, clean, clear water. You wanna maintain the sleeve and you want to maintain your electrical supply so that it's consistent and dependable. So Greg, I, you have cleared up what I long suspected that, that uh, things are not as simple as we're always told, uh, especially when it comes to really all alternative sanitizers, but I, you've really kind of uh, given us a lot to think about with our UV. Uh, it kind of comes down to me to the same thing we, we talked about with ozone systems most of the what's sold for the residential market is, is undersized. They don't give you enough data um, to really make a good decision about it. Um, 
you you have to really look for a manufacturer that's willing to give you the numbers with ozone you want to know grams per hour and and uh, concentration rates with uv you want to know the the millijoules the flow rates the um you, you know all the sizing considerations we need to, to do a little more investigation ourselves and know our our uvt our, our water clarity uh thank you for clearing that term up for me um so like everything in our business it's not as simple as it looks like on the surface but you've really helped demystify uv a lot for me i hope that works the same way for uh, those that are listening and uh, we really appreciate your time i know uh, we've got other jobs and we got to get to work but i could talk to you all day um, but thank you very much for this and we'd love to have you back because there's one more uh, important piece of the the puzzle another tool in the box is AOP. And, and I got a feeling that's not as easy as it sounds either. Oh boy, AOP is <laughs> awesome, but it's complicated. And it our is. job as professionals is to weed through the complication and come up with simple solutions to complex problems for our customers. But we gotta understand the moving parts. So yeah, AOP is awesome, but uh, the old saying, fools rush in. Yeah, that, that's happening a lot these days with AOP. So we should take yeah. some time and talk about that in detail. All right, well, stay tuned for a future episode. We'll definitely. Yeah. Definitely and I was going to say too, Greg had mentioned that, um, you know, about studies, about other people doing studies in regards to UV. And I just wanted to mention a former guest of ours, Chip Blatchley at Purdue University has been studying UV um, for years and years and years. And so we actually have a podcast episode, an earlier one where he talks about UV and, and that's a great one to listen to too, if you want to get additional information about this topic. Greg, thank you again so much. We truly appreciate you being on with us. Always a pleasure, you guys are great. Thanks. A new voice in the industry, a resource for all, education for you. This is Pool Pro Podcast. Build relationships and share important news as we get ready for our next backyard adventure. Pool Pro Podcast, backyard adventures are better together. Please take a moment to share like, and review our content with all of those that would be interested.